I'm Maurice O'Keefe and this is the second podcast in a series of seven relating to Dublin family businesses. And this week, it's L.R. Wood Limited Holding Company. And this is a fascinating look back over the most of a hundred years of two generations of a family trading in Cork and Dublin. They were pioneering in their outlook and it all started with Leonard Robert Wood when he opened his first shop in Dame Street in 1924 trading under Burwood's retailing early radios and crystal sets. They moved back to Cork in 1927 when he opened his second shop at Merchant's Quay and then the family moved again back to Dublin in 1951 and that's when Leonard's son Trevor joined the business and they opened their head office in Pierce Street. I spoke to Trevor Wood at his home in County Dublin and I first asked him to fill me in on the background of the family history. I'm talking to Trevor Wood here in Glenageary. Uh, Trevor, it's lovely to be here in your home and, and chatting to you about uh, your your life and uh, your uh, and business in your family. Um, can we? It all started in Cork, did it? As far as I'm aware, it started in Cork. He, I have some reason to believe that he also did business in Dublin before starting in Cork. And what was your father's name? Len Wood, Leonard Robert Wood, L.R. Wood. Okay, and what did he start uh, his business? He, he started doing crystal sets and of his inbuilt interest in radio and the development of radio. I know the reason he was in Cork. Uh, is that uh, that he was very interested because the radio station in Cork was just opening at that period and it was a very good opportunity. Um, his prior history I don't have much knowledge of to 1924. Um, so from there on he developed and built radios. Briefly the history went that he built and made radios for in the 20s and he sold all the spare parts for radios so that people could build their own radios that they were simplistic at the time and they could uh, and electricity was coming on and he got involved with uh, electrical installation materials uh, and hence issued a catalogue uh, fully priced which he distributed in the south of Ireland oh, which you have here I have right. a copy of it I yet have and uh, what was the address uh, of the, where the premises were the first premises was in 41 Merchant Street <laughs> and uh, I, I don't again know the exact date he moved from Merchant Street to um, to, to Bridge Street but I know he bought the premises from Thompson's Bakery. Now, this is uh, interesting. Uh, may I go back and say that he developed his well-known status in Cork very simply by in Merchant Street, uh, to the annoyance of the local council, I believe, that he put a micro, uh, uh, speaker outside the shop, and he was able to. He had this 
brought the crowds of people to hear the racing results and the Gaelic results. <laughs> Wasn't that fascinating? And it, ba- it blocked the whole of Merchant Street. <laughs> it's fascinating. And, and that was in, in around the early 20s. That was 20s. in the late 20s. Late 20s. Late 20s. Oh, the late 20s. Late, late 20s. That would um, be the late 20s. Do you feel that uh, the, 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 he never spoke to you, did he, about the troubles in Cork at the time? He did. He was absolutely mute. Tight on the subject. He was very, be blunt, very euconymical, totally euconymical. He could not see the sense between two brown doors, as he said himself to me. But he, he honestly said, uh, one lesson to me, you must learn now. Keep your head down. All right. Uh, was he Church Ireland. of Ireland? Church yeah. of Ireland, yeah. And uh, we are still send it from the Huguenots, and we have a full history of that. <laughs> for London and God knows this. Um, but we know we traced our history, uh, we traced our bloodlines back. Okay. And uh, we, I know what happened and how we they happened to land in London, and after that, I have no clue. <laughs> And how from France, it's, it's yes. interesting, you know. They came in from Lille. The Huguenots were chased out of Europe, as you know, and they, left, they were chased because they were, they, he had a knot of um, weavers for silk, and uh, they set up uh, that. And their name was Coke. I have the name; it's gone out of my head temporarily. Oh. And he, a French name, and he landed. They apparently this family landed in England. And they worked away with their silk weaving. Silk weaving became recognised. Sorry, yeah, yeah. became recognised. <laughs> and he he was the apparently this guy was interested in like doing furniture and timber, and in order to sell the stuff, he changed his name to wood. <laughs> and what had it been? Uh, it's a French name. I can't remember. I can I can oh. look it up. Okay. I can get it. I've forgotten it. Oh, that's interesting. So, um, me, I, may I interrupt? Yeah, yeah, you can. I have gaps in my memory because I'm 88 years of age and I do suffer from gaps. Oh, shall we? We, we get around that. <laughs> we get around that. Where, where, where was uh, where was the family home? Where did your father, do you think, grew up? I think he did a lot growing up in England. Yeah, but I don't know. Um, and did you mention Cove? Uh, he, he, yes, he, he lived in Cove Number Two, Spy Hill, uh, when I was born. And really, that is when life began for me, and that's where it began. I any history I've picked up was due to these papers around the place. Um, well, it's good you held on to them, you know. Well, it's, they're, it's, they're, uh, it, 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 it tells you an awful lot about the, the early days of radio, the wireless. Radio. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Interesting. Uh, um, the interesting point now I would like to get come over to is what happened. He did all these radios, and the next thing, Dev was going to starve England out of work, as you know, and uh, he... Uh, and he was importing the frames and assembling a radio, basically. He he had the franchise for for products, I'm sure. He had the franchise for Dagonite battery for Dagonite wet cell batteries, which were used in cars and radios, two volt and six volt, twelve volt. Uh, and they had the charging facility uh, in the basement, where the flood of the flooding of the leave made no difference. With the industrialization attempts by the government, um, they um, brought in, they put 
um, heavy duties and licenses on the import of um, the frames uh, for radio. Um, and of course, um, the likes of Philips and Pi uh, were getting licenses and, um, and would only supply at a very high price, presumably, and therefore um, radios produced in smaller quantities in Dublin, in Cork, sorry, um, were too expensive. So he he starts he had to buy Philips radios for his shop and Pi radios, etc. Time moved on, and he started assembling bicycles. Um, and Zenith was one of the brands. AGS was another one, uh, and uh, I recollect this man or two men in in the lofts of number three Bridge Street assembling bikes. The truing of the wheels which I partaked making a nuisance of myself when I was quite young um, and I could spin the wheel to true. He uh, moved that well and until Irish Rally um, started assembling in Dublin, and once again, um, the fr it is essential to have a frame which had to be imported, um, would had, had to be bought from Raleigh, um, and of course the price was exorbitant, so that was the that was the beginning of the end of assembly of bicycles. But he went on over the years selling not only the bicycle, uh, selling all the spare parts. And he became, by virtue of his um, distribution ability, um, and he became a he imported lots of spare parts for bicycles, which were required all around the country. And he had reps out on the road, selling to the electrical trade, to the hardware trade, to the cycle trade, and uh, ultimately even into the garages. Um, selling all their spare parts, uh, what they required or what was required or wasn't available elsewhere. And he was very good about um, sourcing supplies of what was wanted anywhere from America back to Europe and England. But he imported whatever he could find from the north. Uh, and he also... Uh, this is during the war years. During yeah. the war years. I don't know. And he... Because of his connections across so many trades, be it the motor trade, the electrical, and uh, radio trades, he had connections all over all over England in particular, uh, and uh, he was able to find things and get bring in some tires and tubes for bicycles. Uh, wherever he got them from, I don't know, and he brought in. Um, Immediately after the war, when all the American cars arrived, he managed. He bought in quantities of the electronic sector items, spark plugs, condensers, and cylinder heads, and the nuts. Okay. And, uh, and Ford factory, of course, was set up there in Cork at the time. So was he supplying? No, he wouldn't. Be, he was supplying the garage with the spare parts. He was supplying the cycle dealers with spare parts. 
um, beds, handlebar grips of tires. You know, yeah. yes, that was the sort of yeah. twist of it. And they all they were all necessary, and he had a rep going round. But you've got to realise that the bones of the business at the time uh, was building up with the rural electrification. Yes, and uh, cabling was a strong item in his mind always, and the electric items, which show at the very early stage in in the catalogue there that you have making the fr- the frames, for instance, the, the frames, and also the cabinets. Uh, he had cabinets made locally, I'm told, but I don't know. Um, but then again, I think he was importing some of these cabinets from England again with his own name on them. And uh, uh, and they were selling okay in the very early days. But if you move on through the catalogue, you'll find um, batteries, big batteries, uh, dry batteries, and you'll most see then the ancillary things that was, could be sold to shops or uh, hardware shops, uh, bicycle shops, you name it. Um, bicycle lamps would bring you immediately into that area plus that. And uh, it's but there are the loudspeakers which he used for <laughs> that. And but at that stage, even though it was a very early stage, the metal plugs, metal lamp holders, and that kind of thing, and ceiling roses and switches, he was advertising those in 1929 in this catalogue here. Uh, so it was very early on he was uh, switching um, and, and had available this lot of stuff in his stores in Bridge Street. And do you remember that, Trevor? Do you no. remember that store with all the, all oh, the stuff? I certainly remember the store, yes. Uh, it was a, a shop in Bridge Street and it was connected to a lane at the, at the side of a fish shop, a fish shop in McCurtain Street. That's where we leave Cork. And so the family then moved to Dublin and opened their head office in Pierce Street in 1952. He moved his head office to Dublin in 1952. So in Pierce Street, that's where he set up... Uh, and he kept the Cork place going, but it was started to go downhill. But it was going downhill with the trade. Yeah. The, tra- the, electronic, the electrical trade in the installation trade for the ESB, rural electrification, was being fulfilled. Right. So trade was dropping with it. But and he, I could see it a was, mile away. Your father, but he was ahead of his time. He yeah. was uh, an entrepreneur. Oh, he was. So you were telling me that, that the, the rural le- electrification after the, the, the emergency, yeah. how was he doing? He was, he, was, he was okay on it. I mean, he was supplying, as, as I can see here, um, everything for that purpose. And he even, even got involved with the um, <coughs> cross-Atlantic cable with his technology on telecommunications. And I really must one day get down and look at that um, museum. It's one of my, I've made two, three attempts. Waterville was his favourite watering place and our holiday place. Uh, and uh, because he had connections with all the people in the engineers and so forth in Valencia. Really? In, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's extraordinary. Yeah. So he, he had a great interest in the, uh, the whole area of, of electrics. Yeah, uh, he got involved with that. Yeah. He, he understood them. Yeah. And I never had an understanding. I should have gone done an electrical degree or something like that, but there was no sign of him pushing me to do, do that. 
uh, when I when I eventually ran when I eventually was in the business I was having a lovely time playing hockey and rugby and all the rest of it and sailing boats and um, and, and doing a day's work and getting frustrated <laughs> because I couldn't do much I couldn't get a new typewriter if I wanted it you know that sort of thing he lost interest and went out in the garden and I had to go to the garden sometimes to get decision. <laughs> At what age were you when you were brought into the company? About 22. And did you want to go in or did you... Had I was you reluctant. I didn't really want to go in at all. Um, I wanted to do my own thing. But I felt honour bound to help him if he needed it. I went off to Germany to learn German. And within four, three weeks or four weeks, three weeks, I suppose, four weeks, I he called me, he called me on the phone. Will you for God's sake come home? So and so's left, and I need your help. That was me in. Can you describe your impressions when you were, you know, when you went in first? What what was it like in there? Was there many people employed? And no, there wasn't. There was only five or six people there in the Dublin office. There was eight or nine or ten down there was maybe there was two probably in Burwoods and there was probably three in the wholesale section the business in Cork was split in two there was L.R. Wood Limited the wholesaling section and there was Burwoods the retailing section Uh, there was two two very old um, family stalwarts there (laughs) in Burwoods and they were there for years with them Ever since one of them, Jimmy McCormick, was with him from he was since he was a child, nearly a lovely, lovely man. Yeah. And uh, the others then in LR Wood Limited, that's the wholesale section. I really didn't know them. Um, I don't know who they were. Now we talk about Leo. Leo Murphy was one of them. That's all I can tell. Anyway, there was probably three or four or five there, and that was gradually reducing as the business was dropping. Because he wasn't there to drive it. That was the gist of it. And he was, he, and he was gardening in Dublin, so he was dropping here too. <laughs> and, and did you kind of take over the business? Uh, or, no. Or who, who was in charge? He was in charge. But after he... St- when he went, I was there. It was mine yeah. to do what I could with. Uh, so I got stuck in, talk about 24-hour 24, <laughs> work. For, uh, you know, I, I said, I, I've got to prove myself. I needed to prove myself to myself. Uh, halfway through that period that I was uh, working for him I picked up I spoke with a man I don't know socially I don't know where we got him from Um, anyway he ran a company in England called Polybond and he said you should Trevor you should take that up I thought grab I'm going for this he gave me the full explanation on it. So I, off I went, <laughs> and I started uh, promoting Polybond. Here is something my father knows nothing about. <laughs> I, I grabbed this with to both hands to prove myself to myself. I, you need to do that. And I did. And I built it up. Polybond, I became the Irish expert in PVAs and concrete. <laughs> recommended and any problems that occurred in the building centre in, in, in cement in Ireland I was involved I did a bit of a course in building in the, the local tech enough to give me a good insight into um, 
almost the molecular structure of cement and <laughs> I enjoyed doing that enormously. We ended up with about 80% of the market of the PVAs in Ireland. Uh, it was a marvellous time for me because it was successful, it moved well, uh, I, had a, I had a good rep on it. Uh, he was an Englishman actually, a Yorkshireman, Mr. Long, long something, long life, and he became a friend. <laughs> uh, and um, he was—he uh, had previously worked with the cement marketing company, and he knew what he was doing, and he was great. Well, this this was an essential product to have, wasn't it? Was it? One side for me, yeah, uh, and it did thousands of jobs, and I enjoyed the advertising of it, and I enjoyed the whole structure of building it up through Bill Brooks, Thomas, and Heaton's, and. McFarren and Gelfords and everybody, they all bought it, and uh, it was good. And I uh, and we, we made it quite clear to the men behind the counter: if you've a problem, ring us, tell us. Okay. No, the other guy that I got came from Yorkshire. Oh yes, uh, the, 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 your your um, uh, my my, the, my rep, the man on the, the road. Yeah, the and man on the road. His name? Uh, Lightfoot. Lightfoot. Yeah. Uh, he, he was. Um, a lovely, lovely, honest-to-God Yorkshireman, and I've admired Yorkshireman ever since. So <laughs> did you grow the business at that stage? I, did you I, I started it, yes. I, sta I started, I said, well, now the, the proof of the pudding, I've got to get cracking, and I did. So we ca I ca carried on the business as was, uh, with reps and everything else. And one day I woke up, I, I got it going. I got the profitability going again. I got some of the. I'd started to look at means of, or even at that time, to try and get figures out quickly. One of the thoughts my father had was that he was pedantic about um, keeping records and things like that and writing things down. And he. I, I really blew my. One of the reasons I blew my top with him. He was a great guy in the end because we became great friends when when he retired. But uh, he um, he we used to stock take at the end of March, and then about November I'd be called to the office. What then? God's name's going down there, and I said one day, "What the fucking hell do you think I'm going to do about six months later?" <laughs> I really flew at him, and I don't swear. It's against my principles altogether. But okay, <laughs> the red hair flew out of me. <laughs> but anyway, um, there was an agro, it built agro there uh, because I was frustrated. But the polybond saved it, saved me because I was fully occupied there. And um, I carried that forward. Polybond, unfortunately, then got taken over as a company. And they already had a uh, the big company had a big agent here in Ireland and I lost it. I had a year's run in it and that left me hanging. How long were you with Polybond or how long did you uh, I don't know when that? I started. I'd have to look it up. Yeah, but I you were there for years. And uh, I did. It, it was certainly three or four years in that period yeah. that I ran it, that I developed it, probably two or three years, maybe four years. And what happened then? Then how, I, how carried that forward. I carried that forward. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Lightfoot got, got killed, unfortunately, in a car accident. Oh. I got another rep who was quite good. Uh, spoke Irish fluently. Not that that meant much to me. Um, no, I can't remember. O'Brien. 
Anyway, he's a nice guy. G- hard GA man, man got me to got me to, to the GA matches in in the, in the, in the stadium. <laughs> yeah, get tickets anytime. <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, he was quite good. And then uh, when Polybond went, he went with it. And um, but uh, I had I was I because I had been there and I had a lease. I had a, an agreement. Whereby that a year, if that happened, I would get continue to get supplies for a year, which I did, and that was all I could do about it. I did not realise, because I did not have figures at that point. This is when I was in charge. I was fighting to get figures uh, promptly so that I could run the business properly. Um, I did not realise that the business. In, in actually, the pro- the profitability of Polybond held the business together. Okay. <laughs> anyway, struggled out of that, uh, and one day, talking, listening, watching, thinking, uh, some years after, and watching the fact that the trade was dropping that we were in, developing the motor trade, which I did. A lot of it, and I uh, turned the cork shop from um, a radio shop into a motor accessory shop and parts and service, that sort of thing. And, um, and that whole area was growing, so I went, I followed that path- pattern. And one day I said to myself, Here am I giving credit, having to chase people to get the money. A sale is not a sale until it's paid for. Nobody seems to realise that. (laughs) And then I read of a firm called, God help me, they're in south of England, and they're on a cash and carry to the motor trade. No, first of all, there was a cash and carry in Northside City, that's it. Sorry, forgive me for going back again. No, it's okay. It's interesting. A little a cushion carry to the um, to the grocery trade. He his name is Rowe, John Rowe, and I went up one day to see him. I was interested in the business, looking at that because I was unhappy with that. Uh, I had that you were constantly in a bad situation. A, because the wholesale and turnover tax arrangements which the government had that that period and the, and the difficulty of actually making a profit and if you did make a profit some 60% was taken off you and that meant that you couldn't build up any reserves of capital you couldn't build you'd, you couldn't build because it's just the expenses ran away that much of it anyway and um, so on an analysis of that, I said, uh-uh, there's another way around this, and I don't know which way it is. I'll go and talk to John Rowe. <laughs> and, uh, and I did, and okay, that was fine. I then spoke to a very, I met skiing, a very famous man, John Tidy. <laughs> the man that was kidnapped? Yeah. Oh. Friend, yeah. I'm a friend of his today, to this day. <laughs> anyway, but I met him, and I quizzed him because he was in Duns. We were supplying Duns at that period. And with... Uh, what were you supplying them with? I was supplying them with tools, one thing. 
bits and pieces of motor cars which they mm. had to stand for and that class of stuff and some electrical stuff but they were absolute uh, excuse I, I'll reserve the word <laughs> to deal with and uh, you they take the stuff and the next thing you pick it all to arrive back in bits and uh, put up with this for a while and then I'd found that they weren't paying me either so I and they were taking discount which they weren't really entitled they certainly weren't entitled to it by the time they paid for it so I went in one day no I didn't meet Tidy I met somebody else and we I went in and I discussed this with this man and I get red hairs again and I said you know what I'm closing the account it cost me 8,000 quid at that time to close the account because I couldn't get paid by them oh, withdrawn discounts for pay prompt payment which and was that's a lot of money in those days what, what, what you, any uh, idea what that would 60s, have been maybe? 60s yeah um, and I closed the account bang I just closed it. I said, there is no profitability in that for me. Vinny. Oh, you can't do that. <laughs> I said, you'd be surprised. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> and, um, but in the meantime, I'd learned a lesson from Duns and their ilk. Cash is king. Yeah. So I popped, popped over to England I popped down to a crowd south of London to introduce myself and got a full breakdown of what he did. He was he had a cash and carry to the motor trade in England. I said, that's where I'm going. I have a good reputation, very good reputation paying my accounts. I can and I opened up a small cash and carry at the back of Pier Street. Uh, the principle I went for more than anything that I was wrong in this day and age what I was doing and I was uh, on the long term I didn't see a future um, and I really had to think differently to my father <laughs> who I respected his mental abilities which were far stronger than mine and um, the uh, he should have been he should have been a lawyer because he could, if that was brown, he'd tell you it's, it's blue and you'd, have, you'd believe him by the time you left the table. Uh, but I'm sorry for touching it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, anyway, um, but the interesting thing there was, I did that. But at the same time, I have strong words to say about Dublin Corporation at this point. I had the premises in Pier Street which was under the railway arches. Oh, yes. Uh, grand premises, but it's increasingly traffic choked. But anyway, um, the next thing was, it was a reserve building. I wanted to get the hell out of Pier Street and couldn't. Uh, but I needed to. I had the little cash and carry, which I had plunked into a little warehouse at the back of our premises owned previously by Fox's Mints <laughs> interesting <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and this place smelt mint from that day 
probably to today. <laughs> and uh, anyway, opened it there, and I got a guy in doing it, and he was okay. He was a nice guy, and he did he he was he he did his damnedest, and it became known, but it wasn't going to succeed there. But also, this thing of Pier Street was is a curse. I got something like a ridiculous fee of twenty two pounds a square foot or something whereas they were getting 40 and 50 up the street and that's all I could get for it Trinity actually came to me wanted to buy it and I would have been gone like a flash but they weren't allowed to buy it because it took a listed building <laughs> and they would pay me a reasonable price so I had to get out of Pier Street literally at half price <laughs> I could get damn old compensation for it I see it in screwing a certain amount out of them but compulsory poetry order you're a, you're on a loser uh, and the corporation didn't recognise little people like me little gum beans from cork and <laughs> the anyway so I moved out anyway I had to move out and where did you and I moved to? out to in Shakur. now talk about being innocent with builders Jesus I was taken to the cleaners by a builder and he wasn't really but I was certainly deceived mm. I moved out and there was no electricity in the place I just computerized and um, I had a terrible time with them um, for instance when I arrived there with my staff there was no lavatories and there was no skirting boards but anyway I fixed I eventually got everything done and that was in McCurtain, uh, in, in Shakur Industrial uh, I can got the name of the estate now um, we were robbed there quite a bit it was you know there's a well, you don't but just over the over the wall at the back of the estate was a graveyard of nuns you know one of those yeah. religious ones and they used to hide in there and then come in and all right and and but and we were disturbed regularly I remember stayed there all night at times <laughs> uh, we, you, you were carrying a lot of stock there, were you? Oh, I was carrying stock. Yes, what I'd done is I'd convert the entire company to uh, uh, Lemwood uh, Cash and Carry. I see. And and so your business now was Cash and Carry yeah. instead of Wholesale. Instead of Wholesale. Did that work well? Yes. Uh, when we moved out to Inchicor, I broke off the electrical and the motor. Uh, I pointed Dick Walsh to run, who, who had been, uh, who, who I had as a person basically looking after the electrical area in Pier Street. And, I, and he came out and looked after it and specialised in that completely. Uh, and he had a helper and he started that business as, as Ella Wood agencies. Um, which has subsequently subsequently become Wood Communications through various name changes, uh, and is still running to this very day. There's more, um, but they took a slice of the building in in Chico. and now I concentrated on Limwood on the. He did that work and did it very well. And he um, kept it going, as I said to him, you've been with me a long time, or with the company a long time, and you have um, 
so long as you don't lose money, you can just keep this going. And um, because we had a good reputation there to hold on to. Uh, so that was that. And um, so out in Inchicore, that worked well. So much so that uh, we have built up very strong relationships with suppliers because we were fast moving. We moved the stock fast. Uh, we were, it was a price thing like Duns and the rest of them. Uh, and um, we sold very well and um, the trade was expanding and we were doing well. People were decorating their cars with their God knows what and they wanted spare parts and so on. So um, that worked well for us and we expanded out of that place. Uh, and I bought 50,000 square feet <laughs> in Longwell Road. Uh, and... Um, Good, that was the old Volkswagen factory. Um, it had been the old... It had been, it had been the old factory, factory and, uh, and I bought it from MDL. Uh, this bit of it, the bit of their premises, and they didn't want it anymore. So that was fine. Uh, it was interesting. I learned afterwards that, uh, part of the, that part of the floor was marked off, and I couldn't figure out what it was. Uh... Anyway, somebody then gave me the history of it, that old man Volkswagen, old man McFlaherty had imported spurious spares and he got caught by Volkswagen. So he buried them in the concrete of this new factory <laughs> under the floor where we were. <laughs> Just a matter of fun. <laughs> and the, uh, anyway, we opened that, opened that, opened up there. That was great. It was, a, it was in its own grounds. And it's great, and we expanded and filled that up very quickly. And then we expanded the um, telecommunications business. My sister came back and did a bit of work in there for a while uh, because her son worked for me for a while. Um, however, that's the telecommunications became, and I put a fellow called John Price in charge. He was a specialist in an area that I became very fascinated with, which was. Um, fiber optics <laughs> I was at an exhibition and somebody was demonstrating uh, security and I watched what was going on I, it was incredible to see it <laughs> what, what they were demonstrating uh, a sort of uh, from a point of clarity of like uh, picture of what was going on half a mile away and I said there's a future here anyway the real thing there was I picked up John Price who was a young Irish guy educated in Holland was fascinated like myself in fiber optics <laughs> and I took him on and ultimately he made a manager and he ran the, he ran and what was had become wood communications uh, in fact, he did very well with it, uh, and off we went, and we opened up in um, um, Ballymount Industrial Estate. We opened up a separate warehouse there for them, and moved them lock, stock, and barrel out of the Longmire Road. Okay. Uh, what was working well for you at this stage? Was it uh, uh, well fiber optics, or no? I, I was running both at that time. Electricity and post office and so forth, and there were all these. Uh, courses set up 
by the government and they paid people to take the courses and I tried to get this and I hadn't a hope <laughs> um, as an individual uh, to get any sense out of the government so I set up my own course anyway and the people had to pay to come and see it and we set it up in, in we set it up in-house with the obvious um, thought to myself, says I, if they're in-house, that means they know my staff, that means they will uh, use the staff for prices and queries and what have you in technically involved. So we uh, went on with that and eventually um, gave these courses uh, and got them to a standard that we could give city and guilds the, okay. which is the London crowd for um, certification of installation of of fibre optics. It was fascinating, and, and was there? A, a, did you get a, a lot of um, we have people done needing? thousands of them from since since nineteen since the turn of the century, I think. Uh, we put through thousands of people on that the courses. Um, uh, what was it called? It was a, it it was a training course. And here, it's, it's a training course on structured cabling, uh, wireless fiber optic, CAT5, CAT6, I mean, uh, and so on. And um, that's what the essence of it was. It's a five-day course. Uh, were you the first to do this? We were. And we're one of the few that still do it. Um, Fascinating, isn't it? It is. It's, it's interesting. Uh, and with those people who have gone from us all over the world. And uh, and and they are up at the ESB and so forth. Still, send people into us, uh, and it's working. That's a, a sort of. I felt that was a, a, in the rough times in the t at the turn, just after the turn of the century. You know, there was a downturn in the economy. Then, the economy. And, and, and so doing this was was, uh, was a, good a savior for, for, it for, was, for the it was excellent. It kept us it kept us in the limelight, as it were, and uh, it was it was it was great. Um, so that's what communications that's it grew yeah. out of the, there was then we had Burwoods in Cork which I I, I was sell, I sold um, and then there was LR Wood Limited the holding company of everything and there was Lemwoods then in the cash and carry business and there was uh, Wood Communications by the stage <laughs> well and, and we're in the 70s now sometime oh uh, you're in the, the 80s, 80s and 90s, 90s and so forth oh yeah so for I, it, but it, it rolled on I can't keep its dates because I never kept a record of it okay but it, it was a very <laughs> successful operation uh, it was each no, month. Yeah. no question no, no, it worked well worked well I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I didn't make lots of mistakes but I did but yeah. um, anyway the point was that uh it worked. I was one of the first people to computerize in the 80, late eighties. I was determined to computerize, mm -hmm. and that's I got. I picked up all the faults anybody starting computer and trying to be get up to date on it. Uh, I um, I needed figures now. Yeah. <laughs> I needed a weekly to know what was going on every month and no missing, and I couldn't get it by hand. Uh, and um, eventually got it, but I had to fight like a little demon <laughs> with the software people who at that stage were laying, that's what you have.
Yeah. No, it will not do. They don't do that, and so on. And I must—I fought every corner to get. And what was interesting me and gives me a little bit of pleasure. Okay. Can I ask you at this stage? What were the main factors that that kind of brought you to this great success? What, what were the the big? Was it moving location? Maybe was it uh, getting the right? Uh, uh, customers that you were dealing with where you what was it moving with the tide keeping ahead all the time was moving, that it simply moving with the, uh, i put it, i am a keen sailor <laughs> and he got the current under me and I, I knew where it was taking me but when i hadn't the current when i was struggling against the current if i may put it in sailing terms yeah. tide mate been going five knots that direction and i was going and i was trying to beat against it in, in three knots of wind you know this sort of thing uh, it's demonstrational i think bluntly i was happy to change anything if necessary like <laughs> was was virgin territory uh, nobody wanted to pay cash and therefore they had got used to the fact the reps went around gave them two months credit or a month's credit and that uh, entailed extra work and begging you beg for an order you beg to be paid and uh, that wasn't what I dreamt of at all <laughs> okay um, so I didn't and when I ran curiously enough uh, even I brought that to bear heavily on the telecommunications business when I set it up uh, wood communications uh, and I was very interested with the uh, fact that I had terrible problems with people like the ESB uh, and others they would delay pay payment um, and we supplied them with gear for uh, the tele telecoms area and uh, so and how do you control of the market Ah, the, the twist there was I was keen on marketing, but also that was vital. But you've got to realise that being keen on cash is more important. Mm. It has to pay for the stock, you've got to pay for it, uh, and um, you've got to pay for the warehousing. It's all costed. And the twist there was that one day I got fed up with the ESB and they were the manager came on to me from the comms and said to me, ESB are screaming for a cabinet okay, eight hundred quids worth. I said, Don't give it to them. They owe us money going back. They're not to have it. <laughs> the answer is no. So you got tough with them? It's just stop supplies. <laughs> I said, No. There's no point in giving to them. So the next thing, a couple of days later, are you the managing director of Wood Communications? Yes, I am. I said, you pay. I said, you can send in 800, whatever the price of yeah. it is, for cash, and you can have it tomorrow. It's sitting there waiting for you if you want it. Um, and uh, from that day to this, we never be had trouble collecting money from them. <laughs> did you have any um, pastimes? Did you? I did. I'm very lucky in that respect. I kept... I used to leave the office at four o'clock every Thursday. That was sacrosanct. Good luck, goodbye. I'm gone. Uh, as far as the crew, the say, as far as my crew, as it were, my staff, they knew that, and I wouldn't be there, and I wouldn't accept any. And I had a good secretary, and I had a good accountant, and I had it all set up there. It was, good, it was running well, and I didn't need to be there 
every day, all day, although I like to be, uh, and I need it to be, because it was still a small business, and I controlled it carefully in terms of stock control and that kind of thing, uh, and price controls. And um, I did that personally because I discovered the accountant had a clue if, he le if I left him in charge. Um, but he was a good guy for all of it. And the, anyway, I uh, did take time off. I made sure I got time. I went sailing every Thursday. <laughs> I had a wee boat. Another, it was a small boat at the time. And uh, I used to come down here to the George Sailing Club and go sailing every Thursday and to help with everybody. <laughs> it was wonderful. Mm. You forg you and as soon as you got in the boat, you forgot all about the unions, the bank manager, everybody. <laughs> they were all gone. You concentrated on the sea, the sails, yeah. the crew, and so forth. Uh, it was a wonderful relief, and Wednesday night was a favourite night for mine for a good solid sleep. <laughs> oh, when did you actually step down from from the business? Or? I didn't step down from the business till I was seventy when I sold out. And who did you sell the I sold business? the business to Colliers. Yeah. And that's Lemwoods now at Lemwood C and C. I'd reached a stage in my seventies. Yeah. Uh I was seventy years of age and feeling the pace. Um and the um I there was I running out of technical knowledge in wood communications, obviously. Uh <laughs> My enthusiasm for Lemwood to drive it on another step or two was obviously uh, dying. I knew I had to sell it. Mm. Uh, there was no alternative. I, I, I needed it for a pension anyway. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Trevor Woods, thank you so much. Thank I'm you. sorry for making it so long. We've come to the end of part two in a seven-part series of podcasts relating to Dublin family businesses. If you enjoyed hearing the story of Trevor Wood, you can visit our website and hear his full interview on www.irishlifeandlore.com. Next week's podcast is on Jacob's Biscuits. What was the reason to... Uh, to move out to Tallinn. Cost. In what way? The cost of manufacturing on a multi-storey building in the middle of Dublin was prohibitive. We were getting uh, absolutely stuck on cost. We were get, the English manufacturers all... Had, biscuit, a biscuit line uh, to produce uh, biscuits is probably 500 feet long. Mm -hmm. Now, we would, the oven would terminate after 200 feet and then it would go up system of conveyors to the next floor and then something could happen another system would come and there was people employed everywhere we had a, at one stage 22 lifts I think it was yeah. Yeah, and each lift had an operator and <laughs> there, just, there were too many people I'm Maurice O'Keefe and I look forward to bringing you that podcast next week <laughs>